This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. This is John T. Uh, Jackie is gone today, so I'm going to be recording a solo episode. I know you've had a couple solo episodes from Jackie in the last couple months, so uh, now you get one from me. Uh, Today, I wanted to talk about the hidden power of data in your recovery or in your change process. And I'm not talking about data that's collected remotely and published in research articles and uh, that you have to be able to withstand a lot of dry information to absorb. I'm talking about the data that comes from your life, from your experience. So let me back up here and uh, give some reasons why we uh, why I'd be promoting a, a data look at your recovery and your change process. So first of all, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, he and Amos Tversky, who did this research, ended up winning a Nobel Prize on it. But they essentially identified two systems uh, in the brain, uh, the two main ways that the brain uh, absorbs and processes information. Uh, The first, they call it system one. This is the gut reaction, surface level look, uh, quick decisions, um, you know, go with the flow kind of uh, decision making process. Uh, This is what uh, gives us the feeling when we walk through a dark parking lot at night or when we approach somebody who uh, just raises the hairs on the back of our neck. We may not know uh, in our like know in our frontal lobe anything about this person or about this situation, but something says there's danger here. Uh, there's value in System One in making really quick assessments. Um, system One is very survival linked, uh, which we all need. Uh, system Two that they identified. This is more of a slower grind process. Um, and there's different kinds of information that are best suited for system one and system two. And so when I talk about gathering data about your recovery, I'm really talking about engaging system two, uh, the, the part of you that observes that's not so much uh, what's my gut saying or how does this feel um, or, or even what does this look like, but really waits for larger, a larger collect, collection of data and a, a deeper collection of data. Um, an example of this, the movie Moneyball, several years ago with Brad Pitt, um, told the real-life story of a, I forget the team, the baseball team uh, this was, but it was the real-life story of this uh, team manager who decided to put together a baseball team based on statistics, and he would play the players based on their stats and what he could predict from the data, how they would perform in a game. And this was a championship uh, team that was put together with not a lot of money, and these names were not very well known, but their stats were known. Uh, so this is a this is another example of how System Two works. Um, often, System Two I think is hard to um, it's hard to listen to. It's hard to mine that data because it's often it can be counterintuitive or it doesn't fit our preconceived notion. Um, but you know, in in that example, uh, it's evident that there's benefits to using system two. And um, this certainly is not a system one versus system two 
kind of a debate because we need both of them. And I think actually the two of them working in tandem um, can be really, really powerful. And we can actually use information from system one to help hone the data collection that we're doing in system two. And we can use information and experience in system two to help us to check the biases of um, system one and to evaluate and analyze the, the information that we're getting from our environment um, a lot more accurately. So how does this even get used in recovery? Like why, or, or a change process? Uh, why would you collect data and how would you collect data? Um, another example from my uh, personal life, a couple of years ago, um, I undertook a course of education that I feel like made me a more competent um, therapist. Uh, I, I work in a uh, private practice. That means that there's no guaranteed paychecks and um, my livelihood depends on my ability to um, let people know what I'm doing and uh, to ins instill confidence in people in the work that I can do um, in a very short amount of time and in advertising. So as part of that, um, I learned a new way of answering the phone, uh, which may sound kind of weird, but uh, just challenged some perceptions I had around the role that the, the telephone played in helping people get into therapy. Um, and so as I was learning this new system and trying it out, I remember talking to the person who, who taught me this, and I just said, it's going terribly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm shaky, I'm not confident, it feels really, really awkward, and he had prepared me a little bit for that, and he said, you know, this is a new way of doing things, so it's going to feel awkward and it's going to feel clunky, but the more you practice it, um, the better you're going to get. Um, and I said, yeah, I, I get that, but nobody, like, none of this is translating, and like, not enough of this is translating into people uh, coming to see me for therapy. In fact, I think I'm doing worse than I was before. And um, he encouraged me to keep a spreadsheet um, that not only had notes about who was calling in so I could make sure that I followed up, but also included notes about how I felt the call went and what I predicted the outcome was going to be. And um, I, I color-coded that column on what I thought the outcome was going to be. Red was this person's absolutely not going to schedule with me. Yellow was... I have no idea, and green is this is definitely going to happen. And um, I would compare that feeling in the moment with the outcome, because uh, you know often you wouldn't know the outcome for a few weeks down the road. You know, people might say, "Yeah, I want to schedule with you," and then they wouldn't show up to an appointment, or people would say, "You know, I'm not sure right now. Let me get back to you." And um, so, going on my gut, what I felt was happening is that I was um, I was successfully uh, scheduling appointments maybe 15% of the time. And that's why I was really, really discouraged. Um, and uh, as I tracked this data over time, what I found was that I was successfully scheduling people more like 70 or 80% of the time, um, which made me really, really happy. Uh, that, that told me that um, my, my phone call and my efforts to help people feel out if I was a good fit for them or not was actually succeeding way more than it was failing. Um, but my lack of confidence and that voice inside my head that, uh, you know, for a lot of my life has said, uh, you're not good enough, this isn't going to work. Um, you know, no, nobody wants, nobody wants you. Um, that voice was tricking me. 
and I was stressed and anxious um, and discouraged for no no current reason. And so keeping that data on what was actually happening uh, was really, really, uh, really, really important for me. Um, another example early, early on in my recovery, I was encouraged to keep a calendar, um, just noting the days that I worked a program and the days that there was relapse. And um, I really resisted this because I thought, like, why do I want to see a history of my failure? Um, I already know that I'm not doing well, um, so, so why do I want to know? Why do I want to have a record of that? And um, as I kept this calendar, what I started to realize, um, it wasn't necessarily that I was doing better than I thought, but that um, what I learned was that my gut perception of how I was doing was usually off. When I wasn't doing so well, I was really good at talking myself into, I'm doing great, there's no problems here, that's just a little hiccup. Um, but when I look at the data, it was like, you know, consistent relapse over a month. But my compartmentalized, distorted thinking would say, um, it's not that much. Um, or when I was doing well, um, that discouraged, self-defeating part of me would say, this hasn't been too long, you're not really making progress, nothing's really changing. Um, but I could look at the data and I would say, holy cow, I've put together 45 days and I've never done that before. And not only is it 45 days of sobriety, but I've you know, worked the basics of my recovery plan for 40 of those 45 days. And that's a whole lot more consistency than I've ever had. And it was very motivating um, to look at the data. Um, I think without keeping some kind of record of what it is we're trying to change, um, without being able to measure what it is that we're wanting to improve on, we're left to system one to interpret everything. Um, and if your system one is hijacked by anxiety, depression, lots of discouragement, um, maybe you've never even, maybe you've never been to a sober place or a, a healthy place in your life. And so there's not even a concept of what that would look like. Um, system one is going to go with what it knows. It's, it's going to look for what it knows, which may be a lot of discouragement, lack of progress. Um, but when we keep some kind of record, when we track some of the data, we have system two to help us see patterns. Um, it helps us hold more information. Um, I think on a brain level, and you'd, you'd have to double check me on the science here, but I'm pretty sure that when you engage in some kind of logic information gathering, you're engaging some of the higher order parts of your brain, like your outer cortices. And we know that in addiction, we're very prone to be limbic. We're very prone to be emotional. Um, kind of those more baser brain functions. And so the act of keeping some kind of record may help to engage uh, the parts of your brain that you're going to need in order to heal and to heal long term. Um, there's another point. Of, oh, yeah, I, I think this is called the Hawthorne effect. And again, I should have done my research a little more on this, but um, this comes out of the Industrial Revolution. And I think the man's name was Nathaniel Hawthorne. And now, again, uh, if you Google this and you find out this is somebody completely different, uh, just know that I have a terrible time with names. Um, it's not uncommon for me that clients I've worked with for years, one day I'll just call them by the wrong name um, because names get jumbled in my head. So if it's not Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, please email me and let me know so that I can uh, correct this story. But I think Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, he, was, he was looking at like factory workers and trying to figure out what made um, what made the factory uh, workers more uh, efficient, 
and um, he noticed every time he was measuring um, and the workers knew he was measuring they were more efficient um, every time he was measuring the workers didn't know they were being measured um, there wasn't a lot of change so the Hawthorne effect is that when we know that behavior or progress is being measured it tends to improve I think there's some caveats there like um, measuring behavior is not sitting on the sideline and waiting for somebody to fail um, I think if we're measured and observed in that way, even if we're doing it to ourselves, um, I think we tend to get performance anxiety. We tend to get discouraged. Um, so the observer, again, even if it's yourself observing, that observer has to be compassionate and they have to be invested in your success. Um, I think there's also something about just looking in the mirror. You know, there's several several aspects of the work I do with clients um, in therapy that just that ability to see themselves starts to change things. I think when we get awareness of how things are working, we get to evaluate, do I like this or not? Does this represent me or not? Do I want more of this? Do I want less of this? Uh, just making those hidden things seen uh, can really start to shift things. I actually think that's one of the, the most powerful parts of therapy or um, you know, even 12-step support work is we start speaking to things that we didn't put names to before. We bring it out into the light, and um, maybe there's not this magical process that changes it. Uh, maybe it's an unburdening, or maybe it's a recognition that this dragon isn't so big and all-powerful, and that we might have some power to um, to slay it, uh, so to speak. Um, so I, I also see this on the uh, the family member side. Um, of addiction. Uh, living with an addict uh, in active addiction is certainly a maddening thing and um, our gut can tell us that uh, this is never going to change, this never gets better, it doesn't matter what I do, uh, things never change. As far as that person changing deep down and their, their heart changing, their desire to get into recovery changing, maybe there's not much you can do to make that happen. But the day in and day out interactions with your addicted loved one um, can change based on what you do. You know, there's there's fights that we can get swept up in. Um, there's pointless debates that we can have. There's arguments that we have day after day, and it only takes one person to change that dynamic. Um, however, I think if if you're the family member or a loved one of an addict and you start thinking like, okay, it's up to me to change this without knowing what the data is or what the specific interaction is that you're wanting to change because you've tracked it, you've observed it, you've recorded it, um, you may be prone to take on a lot of shame. You may be pr prone to take on more than is your share of the responsibility and you may move into something that's enabling um, or um, that's self-defeating. Um, and both of those things I think really hinder uh, obviously your own health and well-being. It's also hard to help somebody when you're scared and, uh, and angry and exhausted all the time. So um, I've even found a lot of help with uh, some of the folks that I work with if they will write out a standard script of how they interact with their addicted spouse around hot button issues. Um, and many of them find when they write out the script once, uh, it could speak for an infinite number of situations that they've had with their spouse because this is a pattern that repeats over and over and over again. And sometimes just seeing that data, you know, he always X, Y, Z, and then I always say or I always feel, um, they may start to notice some patterns in their own behavior that contribute to their own suffering. You know, for, for example, the spouse of an alcoholic, every time he stumbles in drunk and I give him a lecture about how I don't like it when he drinks, um, it starts this argument and he ends up drinking more and, you know, I stay up all night because I'm worried about him 
drinking himself to death or whatever that is. Um, looking at that data, I may say, what's my part in the argument? Again, not that voicing that is wrong, um, and I certainly don't want anyone to get the impression that they shouldn't share their feelings um, or have a place for those to go, or they should just put on a smile and say, this is great. But when we see the data, sometimes we can say, do I want to do it this way today? Is that the outcome I want to work towards today? Or do I want a different outcome? You know, maybe, maybe a night where I'm not up all night worrying about my spouse's drinking in the long run um, doesn't move your spouse any closer to not drinking um, or to not using pornography or um, not, not going out and having an affair. Um, but it does impact your well-being and it does impact uh, your state of mind. And you know that's the one thing about addiction is I think addiction is this gravitational pull to focus on the addict and the addict's behavior. And, and for addicts, we say that's you know it's a it's a selfish thing, um, and it it is it uh, it causes the person to become very self-centered and very unaware of others. Uh, for the loved one, it's it can be this hyper focus on my loved one, and I'm neglecting myself in the process um, because I really want to help this loved one. So knowing the data being able to get it out in front of you to track what actually happens when I do this, what actually happens when I say that, um, how do I feel. Um, I'm a big fan of before and after polls, especially when we're having to do something hard in recovery. You know, if, if going to meetings is difficult for you, you may want to keep a spreadsheet where here's my, here's my feeling and, and level of motivation prior to going to the meeting. And you put that in one column. I was at a three out of ten. I went to the meeting XYZ happened, you may take a few notes on what happened, and afterwards what I felt, I was at a seven for motivation. Um, you know, there may be some social anxiety related to not going to the meeting, not necessarily I never get anything out of the meeting, but if we're only relying on system one, the only thing we may hear is the anxiety, and we may interpret that as I don't get anything out of this, or this isn't good for me. Um, we can also, as I'm, I'm working with folks on building a lifestyle of meaning and engagement, many people have a really difficult time figuring out what they're going to do to round out their life, like hobbies, relationships, pursuits, um, things like that. And uh, I encourage a, a very similar kind of exercise. List some things that you're interested in, some things you're willing to try. Uh, take a poll on your level of interest before you engage in that thing. You know, for, for example, a couple years ago, um, there's this paint night um, program. I guess you'd call it a program. It's just this thing that a lot of local bars uh, do, and I'm sure it's across the country. They'll bring in an artist who will show you how to paint uh, one of their paintings. And um, I grew up uh, oil painting. I took classes. I loved it. I thought it was really fun. And um, so I saw this paint night thing, and I uh, really, really wanted. Um, I really, really wanted to do this. So I bought tickets. Um, actually, my wife bought me tickets for me and a friend of mine for Valentine's Day. She said, "For Valentine's Day, I'm giving you a date with Dan." And um, so we, we showed up, and beforehand, I was probably at an 8, and I was like, this is going to be fun. I can't wait to do this. At the end of the night, I was probably at a 2. Um, and it's not that I didn't have fun and it wasn't interesting. It's that I found myself looking at everybody else's canvas that night, and um, that was not enjoyable for me. Um, I wanted to be in my own experience. And so when I decided to go back to that, I arranged it so that I wasn't going to where I could see everybody else's canvas. Um, I did more of like a, a private lesson, private experience type thing. Um, and that made my level of satisfaction engagement a lot higher. So tracking the data 
can help us to identify the pieces. Like we may be on the right path for what we're doing. We may be on a useful path. Um, there may be a piece or two of that path that's, that's off. And system one would say, it's not working, throw it out. System two would say, what's not working? Uh, what, what, what is not engaging you? What doesn't feel fulfilling? Um, and that's really what we want to, that's really what we want to mine. Um, you know, nothing is wasted in recovery. And uh, sometimes engaging system two, tracking information, actually writing things out, how am I doing, tracking it systematically, uh, can help us see that a lot more clearly. So I hope you go experiment with that, and um, I'd, I'd love to hear how that goes. Uh, I'd also like to know about any other questions um, that our listeners might have about utilizing data in their recovery um, and how they can engage system two a little more fully uh, to their benefit. Um, you can email us as always at thanksforsharingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Don't wait to show your, share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time, and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.